I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Well, thanks for the introduction. Um, lovely to see everyone. It's really nice to be back in the shop as well, because I think the last time I was at an event in here was February 2020. So I guess we'll pick up where we left off. Um, so our conversation um, this evening, I guess, is inspired by Anna's book, which um, is her history of translation and I think particularly looks at the kind of complexities and dilemmas of translation. I don't know if this is quite how you see it, but but my reading of it was that um, you're really interested in that dilemma between that translators have between being sort of conduits for language and other people's ideas and uh, people who actually intervene in their own right and for better or worse either kind of change or contribute to not just the meanings of things but in some cases as you write about in the book the the course of historical events um, and Anna's book uh, it takes examples from history uh, sort of ranging across the world from uh, world leaders at the height of the Cold War to um, translators and guides in the Ottoman Empire to people working uh, as Anna does as uh, sort of professional interpreters today uh, and you know many many more examples besides but I think what we're going to focus on uh, this evening is particularly um, the role that translation plays in journalism which um, is discussed in the book but we're also going to be talking a bit about um, some more recent examples and I suppose I'm both here as a participant in the conversation, but um, something of a, a specimen for study because I'm a journalist. Um, I've got a degree in uh, languages. I did my degree in French and Italian. Uh, I quite often use my language skills in my work and in particular my uh, most recent book, which is about the experiences of refugees in different parts of Europe was uh, a multilingual project in, in various different ways, which I can also talk about a bit later. But I thought um, maybe to kick things off, Anna, if you just want to talk a little bit about the book in general um, and then how journalism fits into the overall uh, story that you're trying to tell there, that would be a good way to start. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks uh, for this introduction, Daniel, and thanks everyone for coming. Can you all hear me? Yeah. So, yeah, um, going back to what you were um, asking me just now, the ideas behind the book. Well, here is one. So when I was uh, researching and writing it, uh, I thought quite a lot about um, the way translation is perceived by those who practice it and by those who don't. Uh, and um, um, beside the quite obvious point, uh, that is, well, translation is super important. The world we live in, multilingual and super connected, would stop moving if it weren't for an army of translators and interpreters who keep it moving, keep it ticking along. Uh, so this is quite obvious, goes without saying. 
But if you look slightly closer at the role of the translator, then uh, you'll see uh, kind of two schools. That's something you just touched upon. And one school says that the translator has to be absolutely invisible. All they have to do is just create some kind of finished product, be it a written text or a speech interpreted into another language. And uh, they are not allowed to leave any um, fingerprints on it. So basically, you're like a, a rubbish collector. Your work only gets noticed when something goes wrong, when you're not doing your job properly. And then the other extreme is um, to say, well, translation is everything. The translator is the most important person in the room or on the page. Uh, they have to be given as much credit or probably even more credit than the author of the original. It's all about them. So I thought, well, um, surely there must be a middle way. Uh, surely, as a translator, you have to be able to do both, and sometimes within the space of the same piece, or at least like at different stages of your career, sometimes you have to step back and remain invisible. But the topic of today's conversation, journalism, is a perfect example of uh, where, as a translator, you constantly have to intervene. You have to contextualize your source, you have to gloss, you have to explain all sorts of things. So you have to be accurate and objective, but also to aim for more than what's already in the original. Yeah, um, and just um, to jump in there, I think actually that was the line that you, you had in the book that was that what journalists tra who, who tr translate the news do is, yeah, they gloss and contextualize, but rephrase, summarize, adapt, uh, and frame stories for their audiences. I mean, that's also serves as a fairly good sort of description of journalism in general, I think. Uh, yeah, and uh, of course, if your source is really bad, then there's only so much you can do about it. But I still think that um, there must be some kind of balance between objectivity, neutrality, accuracy, and bringing a little bit of local color to the story. So if you are reporting a story from uh, a distant part of the world, you kind of want it to sound like something that is not happening right here on your doorstep. But also you want it uh, to be slightly more relatable and kind of localize it. But uh, it's very easy to overdo this. So I guess uh, all my, most of my professional life as a journalist and a translator is about trying to find some kind of golden mean. But enough of me. Why don't you tell us about your own experience, Daniel? Because your Twitter followers know you as trilingual. So what does this Twitter handle stand for? Uh, well, and what's your uh, linguistic background? Yeah, well, I mean, that's just a stupid pun on my surname, Trilling. Um, but it's, it's a reference but, to which, languages as well. It's a reference to language, although I think when I, was, when, I, when I came up with that Twitter name, it was more that, you know, this is where I speak to the world. So um, it was sort of a pun on the idea of language. But, and actually, at first, it hadn't, um, didn't occur to me until people started pronouncing it trilingual that it looked like I was also showing off about how many languages I spoke <laughs> as well. But, but you do um, speak more than one language, and the languages are... Yeah, although I think... I was thinking about that. Like I said, I, I did do a degree in um, French and Italian, uh, although it sort of ended up there. It wasn't kind of... Um, uh, I, I picked it off the clearing list when I didn't get the A-level results that I, I wanted, in fact. Um, so there wasn't a lot of thought put into it as a subject choice. It's just that I can, you know, was quite good at languages and enjoyed it and fancied learning a new language at university, which was Italian. But I was, I was thinking about that today, and it did, I remembered how when, when I would tell people that's what I was studying, I would get annoyed by how often people would just say, oh, so you're going to become a translator then? Um, as if that's, you know, being a kind of professional translator in the way that you've described is kind of 
the only thing that you can do with language, mm. languages professionally. But actually, as a journalist, I have always been a kind of translator using my language skills like that in, in various ways. So um, obviously, I've been able to go off and do reporting projects internationally and work in countries where I know a bit of the language or interview people who, uh, whose language I can speak when that's not English. But um, I think in previous jobs at magazines, uh, I used to work at the New Statesman uh, for quite a few years. And because I spoke French, I would always be the person called upon to type up a translation um, you know, if an article came in from a French or sometimes Italian contributor, I think one of my vivid memories as a very junior member of staff there was being made to type out a, a, a column by Bernard-Henri Lévy um, and get a real sense for overblown, pretentious um, language devoid of, devoid of much, really. But was um, that kind of work always done under a lot of pressure? Was it always uh, some kind of race to rephrase? Well, yeah, so this I think you can speak about a bit more in a minute, but I think one thing that you, you make very clear in your book is sort of, you know, translation doesn't exist in a vacuum and, you know, sometimes it's a kind of personal service given by an individual translator, but, you know, the news media is definitely one of the areas where it's part of this industrial method of production. You know, you're producing news as a commodity and translation has to fit into that in one or more ways. So yes, yeah, sometimes you can be very rushed in doing that. I mean, I think, you, you, you know, I've, I have friends who, um, I've got a friend who, who now lives in France and I notice on Twitter, she's always uh, very exercised by the fact that the, the Guardian, for example, you can see quite often that the quotes that have been translated have been put through Google Translate. Mm, I know, uh, you're lucky uh, touched up by uh, an editor. Um, but I suppose my sort of, experience of that at that kind of sharper end was uh, the, the first job that I had after university which was um, I was working for a press cuttings agency which is something that's been made completely obsolete by technology now uh, but in the old days companies used to pay these agencies to collate press cuttings you know on their brand or their company name or if they were trying to monitor the news for certain subjects um, and I was working in the translation department monitoring French and Italian press and there we were literally on a production line, a physical production line where the papers, physical papers would come in, people would cut them up, feed them through a scanner. You had defined roles to be the person that was doing the first translation or checking it and so on. And you were working on a shift pattern. So I started off on the night shift where things had to be ready for 8 a.m. and you would work through the night processing all this material. Um, but also what was really interesting about that, I think, um, to me was that the clients were uh, big businesses. So I think the two major clients I was working for them were um, investment banks and uh, global telecoms companies. And I remember it was, it was very apparent that you, you sort of see how the position you're at within a big system of industrial production even not just affects what you're doing, but the, even the nature of the language that is used. So actually the translation was very easy because reports on how many billions of dollars profit Morgan Stanley was making each quarter almost needed no translation because the vocabulary was the, you know, it was the language of global capitalism and was often the same words or the same word roots at least in, you know, French or Italian as they were in English. And then there's figures which you just... 
Yeah, or cars. figures. Um, and I mean, this was a couple of years before the financial crash. So my main memory of that job is sort of translating these things and thinking, it sounds like an unreal amount of money being made. That can't mm. be possibly sustainable. Well, incidentally, what's uh, probably the easiest uh, thing for a uh, um, print journalist, which is when you're translating a piece, you don't need to translate the figures. Uh, for an interpreter, it's the hardest bit because if you are, unless you take note of a, a random figure, which has just been uh, said, then you're not going to get it right. So always write down figures because uh, they make no sense. Other linguistic units and like speech as, as a whole is much more meaningful than just random figures. So. Yeah, definitely. I wondered actually if you could just take, draw a bit on your book and tell us a bit about the, the account you give of um, Kind of the rise of news as an international commodity and the role that translations played in that because I think there's some really yeah, interesting sure. but, um, stories um, in there. Perhaps I'll I'll start with that um, with uh, one of the stories in the book which is about uh, mistranslation and uh, it's, um, it's 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 a story which is which comes from journalism. So basically, it was a journalistic blunder which uh, generated the Hungarian word for mistranslation, and the word is. Uh, Leite Jakob, apologies to the Hungarian speakers in the audience, if any, because I, I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I'll explain what it means. So, in 1863, when the famous photographer uh, Nadar first flew in his balloon, uh, there were reports all over the world, and then um, a Hungarian journalist took a, a, news, a, a um, Viennese newspaper and the report published there in German, and he used it as a, as a basis for his own article. <clears throat> and in the German article, it says something like, up, up, we want to fly up as high as Jakob's Leiter. And then this last bit means uh, Jacob's Ladder. But the journalist missed that biblical reference, and he said, we want to fly as high as uh, Jacob Leiter, as if, it was, as if he was referring to a person. Hence the new uh, word, which means mistranslation. And then, yes, I do talk about news as a... As a an international commodity which uh, in this country, I guess, dates back to the early 17th century when the first English newspapers were just running translated pieces. They used uh, lots of continental sources. The 30 years war was uh, happening on the continent and uh, they mainly used French and Dutch newspapers and magazines and what they published were very highly interpretive translations of uh, those pieces. Um, so yeah, that's back uh, in the day, but um, I guess the idea of this event is to talk a little bit more about what's happening uh, right now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, I think that's, um, I think it's good context because it just shows um, there's a kind of continuity in what um, perhaps readership an audience's wants uh, from journalism and um, there's that idea of the journalist as a kind of middleman that is sort of bringing and summarising the, these um, uh, accounts of events to audiences and I think what your book is very interesting on as well is how that very quickly you know it's not just a kind of technical task so obviously you can kind of have mistranslations of words that lead to sort of um, you know neologisms for instance with mm. as, as with your example with Hungarian but also that process of translation can actually kind of shape events politically the how they're understood politically um, or even then how people respond to them so I think that's something that I've thought about a lot in relation to my work on uh, on the refugee crisis in Europe, for example. Um, 
where I think when we were chatting about this earlier, uh, before the talk, you had a question about um, the way I've seen people use even the kind of basic terminology there and how that differs across languages. Yeah, you start your book with, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about the lights in the distance. And um, uh, at the very beginning, you make this uh, very clear that you're talking about different terms such as uh, refugee, asylum seeker, economic migrant. Uh, so, and of course, in English, we understand what the distinctions are. Uh, well, well yeah. is this all kind of similar throughout Europe or is it specific to Anglophone media? Or like, how does this different, uh, this difference translate itself into different languages that you had to deal with while uh, researching your book? Yeah, well, I think actually that kind of, I mean, I'm sure most of you will be aware that those terms, you know, the terms that are applied to migration, particularly those very kind of difficult and dangerous migration routes that refugees and other people, uh, you know, are increasingly taking, those terms are really, really fought over. People are, have these huge arguments about the meanings of them or even which words it's appropriate to use or not. And that's because, you know, the basic terminology has become incredibly politicised because that's such a huge site of political and social conflict in the world. Um, and actually, you said we all understand what they mean in English, but actually the fact, the fact that I needed to put a little glossary at the start of my well, book Well, I meant shows, now that you've explained it, we do, but I didn't um, necessarily make those same distinctions before. I yeah, the book. but I mean, even that is my argument for the way I think those distinctions should be made. And I think sort of um, to try and get at this concisely, I think something that you see constantly, you know, this is, this is a really prominent feature of the politics of migration, and that is necessarily reflected in the language, which is that there's this constant distinction being made by laws or by politicians or by other kind of people who intervene in the situation between kind of deserving and undeserving. So this idea of the the good migrant and the bad migrant, or the, the genuine refugee and the bogus asylum seeker, uh, to take a linguistic dis uh, distinction that's quite common in English. Uh, but obviously when you're working across several different languages, this becomes completely upended because those, you know, within the different linguistic contexts, people are trying to make those kind of distinctions, but they might not be making in the, them in exactly the same way because the politics of that particular country might be a bit different, or it might be etymologically the words just mean something different, or they're they're um, they're used differently. And I think actually a really good example of this came up. Um, a workshop that I was part of a few weeks ago where I was invited in to give a talk to a group of journalists from around Europe um, who are all working together on a kind of cross-border reporting project on refugees in Europe looking at, um, I think they're specifically they're looking at unaccompanied children who go missing in one part of Europe and maybe end up in another part of Europe or maybe don't and they're trying to track what happens to them. But one of the questions there was, well, uh, what do you think about this distinction between migrant and refugee? Because do you think one of those words is kind of inherently pejorative uh, and the other one, other one sort of puts people in a positive light or not? Uh, and I think it was an Italian journalist that said, because, because in my context, actually, we've been pushing... Because I think her impression was that I was saying the word migrant was somehow one that you should avoid because it might be seen as a bit dehumanising or might sort of be taken as a way of delegitimizing people who have got rights as refugees and under refugee law and so on. I think what she said was, well, that's funny because in, 
in Italy, we've been kind of pushing for people to use that word more and not other words that we think are actually more harmful and damaging. And then a Dutch journalist chipped in and said, well, it's kind of, yeah, we have these debates, but the words are all completely different there. So um, it was just a very good insight for me into how those kind of same conflicts are kind of playing out, but in, in very different shapes in different places. But at the same time, um, you know, you're dealing with, with, with that subject, you're dealing with an event that necessarily crosses borders. And as journalists, you've got to find a way to uh, deal with that. Uh, what I liked from your book, though, was that you also show us that that's really not a new thing either. And I think the example of the Boxer Rebellion in China and the way that that was reported was really illuminating there. So I just um, wonder if you could tell us yeah, a little sure. bit about so that. Another, before we finally move on to recent events and current affairs, another historical example from the book, which is a story set in China in around 1900, when the so-called Boxer Rebellion swept over the country. So it was a Chinese uh, uprising against all things and beings foreign. And um, so uh, when I was uh, researching the book, I read various sources. And um, um, what struck me was how differently the same events were actually reported by different journalists. Um, sometimes, I mean, quite often, it was the only way to actually find out, to, to ascertain it was the same event was just to look at the pictures, because there was just one photographer in their midst, and uh, the pictures are all shared between them. Uh, that's how you know this is actually, let's say, uh, Italian troops or French troops or Chinese refugees or something. But um, so um, one of the, uh, one of my sources was actually a book which I had translated before I uh, wrote this. Uh, a few years ago, I was asked to translate a collection by uh, Dmitry Yanchevetsky. He was a Russian journalist based in China, and um, he was reporting the events throughout the uprising, which was then uh, subsequently suppressed. And then this, uh, the collection of his um, reports was published as a book, and an American publisher wanted to... They were doing a series of historical travelogues, basically. So that was one of them. And... Um, so all the sources talk about this uh, moment when uh, the Western troops are winning. They've already taken Pekin, which is what they used to call Beijing in those days. And, uh, of course, looting begins. So um, various uh, soldiers and uh, civilians just go around and uh, take whatever they can get their hands on. Um, well, uh, the uh, British uh, uh, explorer and anthropologist Henry Savage Lander, who was there, he writes about that, and he gives a... Uh, an anecdote, which is, so apparently the um, delegation's quarter where all the Westerners uh, resided, um, uh, there were some kind of guards there, and they were told to stop looting, and just, like, they saw someone who's clearly carrying their booty, they had to intervene. But, uh, for instance, if you are a, I don't know, a French national, and you get stopped by, uh, uh, let's say, uh, your own uh, guards, you say something which sounds kind of like broken English, so you try and deceive those uh, guards, because the guards were told to only deal with their own nationals, and uh, if it's a different country or a uh, different power, just leave them alone. So people were kind of pretending, people who probably didn't speak any, any languages except for their native tongue, they would just uh, do this cheap trick. And uh, 
But then uh, the Russian account of that, uh, the, the account by Dmitry Nchevetsky says that there was horrible looting taking place and almost everyone was involved except for the Russian troops. So I had, I, I was literally gritting my teeth as I was translating this gymnastic uh, rubbish. But yeah, this is one of the examples of how um, the, the, when uh, the same event gets reported in many languages, obviously there are genuine mistakes. There are uh, words which somehow go amiss or something that someone uh, misheard. But, and that's understandable. But also there is a huge political and ideological dimension to it. And uh, this is yeah. what we see, what we used to see in uh, uh, early 20th century China. And this is what we see now. In yeah, Europe. well, exactly. And I think... This is exactly what I wanted to ask you about next, which is um, for some of your reflections on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the way that you've seen, I suppose, the, your, your thoughts on how translation has kind of shaped people's perception of that conflict. Obviously, there's, um, you know, issues around propaganda going in lots of different directions. There's also, you know, been the hot topic for quite a few years now, but kind of fake news and how that's used to kind of mm -hmm. manipulate populations or mm, even what is fake news and so on. So I just wonder how you've seen these things play out in the last couple of months. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, but let me start with not with an example of fake news or propaganda, but with a, with a mistranslation, which was um, quite striking. And that happened um, so back in February, a uh, couple of weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, President Joe Biden addressed uh, his nation. He was basically urging uh, Americans to uh, leave Ukraine. And uh, I think it was on the 11th of February. So he, he clearly didn't rule out the possibility of a war happening. And um, he said, um, well, one of the uh, things he said was uh, this. World War II, said Joe Biden, was a war of necessity. But if Russia attacks Ukraine, it would be a war of choice. And then some Ukrainian TV channels translated it as um, follows. If Russia attacked Ukraine, it would be a war in which we would choose to participate ourselves, which is, of course, a very different uh, <laughs> meaning. So Voice of America, the journalists working there, multilingual journalists, uh, spotted that. And first they referred the audiences to their website where they had the correct uh, Russian and Ukrainian version. And then they said they appealed to their fellow journalists saying, well, be very careful because your mistakes can and probably will cost human lives. So that was, um, I think, probably an example of uh, doing things really uh, in a hurry and maybe a bit of wishful thinking. I mean, I wouldn't know what caused that mistake, but it was clearly quite um, dramatic. Um, but then, uh, so we always say that most journalism is done in a hurry. But I mean, how justified is that? Does it have to be like that? Can at least some of it be avoided? Uh, on the 20th of uh, February, I had an, a message from um, a translation agency. They were looking for someone to go to ITV News, to their office just around the corner. Uh, and you had to be there snappish like within an hour and say, well, it's because like uh, Putin is about to make some speech and uh, you might, they'll just want you to tell them what he's talking about and maybe do a bit of simultaneous interpretation. I was like, so ITV News have been sitting there completely oblivious to the fact that uh, things are about to start happening and they're already kicking off. So do they not have at least like three, four interpreters on their books who they can uh, employ 
uh, if and when, rather than just calling around agencies and shopping around for someone who may or may not be even the right person. I mean, I'm on the National Register of Public Services. It doesn't mean I'm prepared to just walk into the room cold and yeah. interpret it. So actually, I think, I think this issue of kind of doing things in a hurry, you know, this idea that journalism is about doing things in a hurry and mistakes happen because there's not enough time or resources is actually really crucial to understanding the kind of power dynamics that are at play um, here because those choices, you know, that's essentially people have made deliberate choices about what to resource and what not to resource. And those are political decisions made on the part of people that own media organisations. And I think actually one of those kind of journalism in a hurry things that I found really striking about the war uh, in Ukraine was that, you, you know, I noticed that, um, you know, that's a part of the world that, despite being geopolitically very important, is really undercovered by global English language news media. And the moment that it looked like, there, you know, a kind of a real war, quote unquote, was happening there, uh, what I noticed was that loads of the Middle East correspondents from um, newspapers and TV channels were suddenly flown into Kiev and other parts of the country and I mean that's understandable in one sense because what they've got is the experience in covering wars because they're based in a part of the world you know that has had several large-scale prolonged wars over the past decade uh, and you do need a certain set of skills to to just report on on uh, conflicts but also these were people coming in where they didn't necessarily have any kind of language skills or sort of cultural knowledge about the country so they just relied on uh, fixers yeah and actually what that was just making me think about now is that the kind of um, the, the sort of power dynamics and the politics of this play out uh, on very different levels. So you've got the levels of kind of that, that kind of top level decision making where um, for a mix of political and commercial reasons, media organisations actually spend a lot of time deciding what they're not going to tell us about or selectively telling us about things for a particular end. But then you've got the kind of the power of the, or not, of the individual journalist or groups of journalists doing the work on the ground and how their access to resources like language skills affects how they interact with people. And it's something that I've really noticed in the course of my reporting. The more, and certainly something that I felt when I was working on my book Lights in the Distance where I was not only uh, you know, working in different countries of Europe but I was speaking to people who were coming from still other parts of the world and trying to find common languages, you know, either uh, via somebody who was kind of mediating on our behalf or quite often there were people... I think one of the, one of the people you speak to serves as a cultural mediator. Well, that so... happened several, with several, you know, several of the people that I write about in the book, they were also translating for me so that I could speak to other people mm -hmm. around them. But the other thing that um, I did quite a lot of was interacting with people in a language that neither of us spoke as our first language. So um, in one of the bits of the book, uh, one of the parts of the book rather, I spent several years following a group of um, young men and teenage boys who had come from French-speaking parts of West Africa who I met in Italy. So, and the language that we were uh, talking in was sometimes French, sometimes bits of halting Italian, uh, Sometimes, though, the people that I was speaking to, French wasn't their first language, but they knew that because that was a, a common language in the bit of the world they were from, you know, for colonial reasons and so on. Um, and actually, sometimes 
I actually found that was quite a good way at kind of minimizing the kind of massive imbalance of power between me as the reporter, but also the European citizen who can kind of move in and out of the spaces that they were trapped in, like refugee camps or detention centers. Uh, or, you know, I had rights, I had money in a way that people who had just arrived in Europe to claim asylum didn't at that point. But the, the sort of fact that we were all kind of foreigners, in a sense, in this place and speaking a, in a language a thing actually had a bit of a leveling effect. And so, you know, illusory as that was in many ways, it was very useful journalistically because it led to much better conversations where people were more open with me. Uh, I was more attentive to, you know, yeah. I was having to pay closer attention to what they were actually saying because it was in a language that I was filtering back into English. Yeah. Um, but what I also noticed, oh, well, rather, the fact I was able to do that was because I had the luxury of time, which is something you get when you're working on a book project where you're essentially self-funding it and, you know, you don't have the resources of a big media industry behind you to go off and report on it on the one hand, but on the other hand, you've got that independence. But what I did notice was that at the points in the project where I had to rely on the resources of that kind of, um, we need everything fast and need it now and it's got to be done in a hurry side of <laughs> journalism, you had to fit into these kind of preset ways of behaving, or well, there's much more of a pressure to behave in a certain way and to look for certain kinds of information. So a really good example of that from, from my reporting was that in uh, 2013, which was roughly when I started the reporting for that book project, I went to do a story about Syrian refugees who had just crossed the border from Turkey into Bulgaria. And in retrospect, that was the very beginning of the, the refugee crisis that then grew and grew over the, the years that followed. But at the time, it was quite an unusual thing to have happened and there was a little flurry of media attention uh, being paid to it so um, you know TV crews from around the world had descended for a few weeks to uh, these refugee camps in Bulgaria and that was just before I'd arrived and when, when I arrived because I don't speak Bulgarian and I don't speak Arabic I was having to find people who could mediate for me and as you mentioned uh, a, a, a Syrian young man that I met in the refugee camp ended up he wanted to practice his English, because um, partly because he thought that was a way that might actually get him out of the situation he was in. So there's a kind of another example of the power dynamics at play there. He volunteered to kind of show me around and translate for me. But then um, when I wanted to go off and report in another bit of Bulgaria that I didn't have contacts in, somebody gave me the number of a fixer there. Uh, so for those who don't know, fixers are very, very common role in particularly in journalism across different linguistic contexts where um, usually Western journalists from large well-resourced organizations will go and hire local people on the ground essentially to do a lot of the it's not just fixing up contacts people are often asked just to basically be reporters but not properly credited for it but I was given the number of this fixer who I think was Syrian Bulgarian so you know had a foot in both, both camps, both camps, so to speak. And I rang them up and they were so well practiced at dealing with that side of the media industry. The first thing they did on the phone was kind of give me a menu. They said, well, who do you want to speak to? What kind of refugee do you want? Do you want, do you want a woman? Do you want a man? Do you want children? Do you want, do you want somebody whose partner has been killed on the journey to Europe? Do you want someone who's traumatized? You know, in this really kind of uh, quite cynical callous, cynical uh, way. Efficient way. Uh, but, you know, I can, I had the luxury of, at that point, I thought, well, I don't want to work with that person because that's not what I'm there for. But I had the luxury of doing that. If I was a, a TV news crew, 
you who had been, to... I'd been flown in and by the end of the weekend or whenever I'd have had to get footage back to the, you know, mm. beam footage back to the TV station to beam, to go out, I'd have <clears throat> found those services extremely useful. But um, I think that just shows you the, the, the role that all those kind of industrial factors play in shaping what you hear and what you see and even how that's translated or, or mediated by others. I wonder if we, I mean, I'd still we like haven't, to... We haven't touched on fake news. Do you want to hear no, some so I was just uh, going to say, I'd, I'd like to hear your thought, <laughs> thoughts on those. So, <clears throat> um, well, obviously, uh, there are various techniques uh, for spotting fakes, and people use uh, geolocation data and various high-tech methodologies, but um, the kind of the most obvious and uh, low-tech uh, method, which is check your source, somehow gets overlooked. And uh, let me share one of my favorite examples, and that's uh, going back to March this year when uh, uh, Russian, the Russian propaganda machine was kind of uh, working at its height. I mean, as it is doing now. But, um, so this example comes from the notorious uh, center of our journalistic excellence, which is Russia Today. And they, were, uh, they ran a story in March to prove that Russia was preparing to attack Crimea. So the story was a complete fake. The Ukraine, rather. Oh, sorry, that Ukraine was um, sorry, uh, planning to attack uh, Crimea. So the uh, propagandists uh, faked uh, medals, which, according to them, had been prepared, like produced by Ukraine in advance. Uh, and um, so the story runs uh, kind of explaining that there's this uh, attack on Crimea uh, in preparation. And there's uh, these pictures alongside it with like those little medals with a... Uh, inscriptions in Ukrainian for the taking of Crimea. And then, so those medals are in little boxes and there are also little pieces of paper like certificates, which are just blank forms saying, uh, so-and-so uh, is awarded such and such award by presidential decree number such and such. And this is in Ukrainian, but one look at it is enough to say that it was translated, it has been translated from Russian and, and very badly because uh, they just confused, uh, there's, uh, first of all, they confused, um, the word which um, exists in Russian and Ukrainian, ukaz, which translates as decree, uh, with another word, nakaz, which means order, or directive, or mandate even. So uh, they used the wrong one. Obviously, they were kind of, it was apparently to be a presidential decree, but uh, ended up being a presidential mandate or something. So that's, that's an obvious one. And then they also misspelled uh, President Zelensky's uh, name, as in his initials. He was, I think he usually signs uh, those kind of papers as V. Zelensky, but uh, that one had his uh, middle uh, initial, the patronymic, which they spelled the Russian way, V-A. In Ukrainian, it would have been V-O, Volodymyr Oleksandrovich, uh, whereas had, if, if he lived in Russia, it would have been V-A. So it was a very crude example of fakery and obviously was spotted quite quickly, but just goes to show that you know, whether you want to report real news or fabricate some fake news, uh, you better get your translation right. <laughs> yeah. I wondered also, did you have any thoughts on, uh, is there anything you've observed kind of in the other direction? So things being translated into English that have emerged from the conflict that have seemed particularly notable to you? Um, yeah, I mean, um, uh, mostly I've been uh, very uh, kind of impressed uh, with the uh, you know, quality uh, outlets. I mean, obviously the BBC, the Guardian mostly. 
Uh, I mean, I must say straight away that now is probably not the time for nitpicking. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to criticize the reporters who are actually reporting from the front line. If they, uh, you know, they really are in a rush and they are risking their lives. So I, I might say, well, I would probably phrase it slightly differently, but it's all, you know, the stylistic infelicities or slight kind of, you know, subtleties, now is probably not the time for it. I mean, come on, the, the Russians still can't translate war as war. They say special operations. So at this kind of point, at this stage in the conflict, uh, which is as horrible as it is meaningless, we shouldn't really pay too much attention to that so long as the message is clear. And when we talked about like how fast and how timely your reports should be, I mean, there are, of course, examples when it has to be done really fast. So uh, Marina Ostyanikova, the woman who was an editor on Channel One, one of Russia's um, uh, state channels, who famously jumped onto a live um, set with an anti-war uh, poster, that had to be uh, reported in many languages, as many as possible, quickly, right away, because of uh, the protest, the nature of it, the danger in which she found herself. Another example, a couple of Russian journalists working for Lenta.ru, which is one of the main uh, news sites in Russia, they kind of infiltrated it. Well, I guess as journalists working for it, they had access to it. So they smuggled a few, up to four different anti-war stories uh, into the uh, kind of the content. And again, the sooner the world learned about it, the better. So when I read this piece in the Guardian where there were some, I think they said, titles instead of headlines, and there was some kind of confusion between miserable, pathetic, uh, pitiable, kind of so some sort of slight uh, infelicities, I'd say, but I didn't mind that. I mean, the message was clear. There are cracks in Russian media. That's great. We want to hear it now, and we don't mind if it's not as polished as it could be. But, um, I mean, the, obviously there, there will be mistakes, uh, which quite often are just calks, or loan words, where someone with a fairly good Russian translates things into English. And like in a, in a, in a randomly picked garden piece, you'll see things like, I'm a simple driver, or, or clearly I'm an ordinary driver was the original meaning, or some, someone's dog was... Uh, running between people's legs when it was actually getting under people's feet. So those kind of small things which I as a, as a Russian speaker and translator will pick up on, but uh, they don't bother me too much. One thing they did there was um, there was a feature, uh, the, uh, CNN ran a feature on, um, so they go and talk to a teacher somewhere in uh, northeastern Ukraine. Uh, so the Russian invaders just uh, march into the school and say to her, well, we, we, we're going to uh, ask you to stop teaching according to your curriculum. Here is the Russian curriculum and teach your students according to that. And they say uh, in the report, um, the woman, the teacher says, well, they said, uh, we have a file for each of you. And I was like, so do they just give them like files with a program with curriculum notes, then I realized that they meant we have a file on each of you, so they're threatening her, and that fell through the cracks. Uh, but if you, well, again, this is, I mean, it does change the meaning, it does give the story a slightly different slant. You can probably guess what they meant, I think I guessed it correctly. But yeah, I mean, these are some of the examples. Um, but generally, the people who are reporting are doing a really good job, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think it's something we haven't discussed, but I, I want to, I, th I think it would be a good point to stop in a second and see if uh, people have questions or, um, you know, things they want to prompt us to talk about a bit more. But um, I suppose the other side of it, 
um, that I've noticed is really apparent that translation, obviously, there's that technical side of kind of dealing with uh, the meanings of sentences and, you know, paragraphs or slightly larger bits of writing um, on, on that level. But then there's a whole lot of um, cultural interpretation that necessarily becomes part of that, even with very simple bits of translation. Um, and I feel like that's where you notice bigger gaps in the way that, for example, Ukraine gets reported on and has been for years, you know, even down to this basic idea that Ukraine is a country split between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers, which is, is true in a sense, but not really in the way that most of the media here has, has described it. So I just think that kind of, um, you know, the idea that the country is literally, you could draw a line down the middle and everyone on one side of the line speaks one language and everyone on the other speaks another, which is just, if anyone who's been there, has spent a bit of time there knows it's just, that's not how things are mixed together there. Um, and, and, and I guess the stories of refugees, again, something that you uh, have uh, followed over the last few months and I have as well in my professional capacity. I think that's something we were talking about earlier, how, whether the refugees who are supposed to be arriving from Ukraine, and let's, uh, let's hope that this is actually happening, and I mean, to an extent, it is happening, uh, whether or not they, uh, let's say they, are, they come from Ukraine, most of the uh, Ukrainians I know speak uh, better Russian than I do, but whether or not they want to hear me interpret uh, from Russian into English and vice versa is a different question. And I'm certainly not going to impose my Russian on anyone who, for whatever reason, might just want to forget that language for good and never use it again. So, yeah. And I guess the group that your uh, family, your mom, uh, are involved with, you were talking about their experiences. Would you like to talk a bit yeah, About very that. briefly. Um, so I think this just kind of crystallizes just how this stuff is is always very political. You know, often that's not so evident. But I think with Ukrainian and Russian at the moment, it's you know for obvious reasons, it's become very evident. But basically, my background is my uh, my mum's parents were both Russian speakers who came to the UK. Um, from places that neither of which are in Russia, uh, but that, you know that's the complicated history of that bit of the world. Um, and my mum grew up speaking basically bilingual uh, in English and Russian, and she lives in a village in Derbyshire that uh, is now playing host to various Ukrainian families that have arrived. And I was saying to her, "Well, you, know, you should go and go and go and offer your translation services." And she was a bit reluctant, and um, and she but she did it, and it's been quite interesting because. Yeah, there's been this real mix. There have been some families who are Ukrainian-speaking who just absolutely don't want to speak uh, to, to some... They would rather not be understood than have to go via Russian at the moment because they're so Understand angry about what understandably happens. Understandably so. Um, but then there are other families in the village who... They're, they're native Russian speakers from Ukraine uh, who, really, who really need the help. And, you know, they may now wish they didn't speak Russian, but that's their language and... Well, but at least uh, if they do make it to this country, there'll certainly be more people working with Russian, like myself, because simply for these simple kind of geopolitical reasons. And uh, let's hope that our linguistic skills will be in demand, because uh, until now, I mean, uh, 
earlier on, back in uh, late February, early March, as someone who still does a bit of interpreting for the Home Office, I'd get a phone call from them and I'd think, yes, there must be uh, some refugees. And it would just be the Home Office wanting to deport someone and uh, booking me to tell me that they, uh, they just, uh, they're just taken to court and deport them. So that's all they ever do. This uh, hostile environment policy basically means that let's just make sure that people don't want to come over here. And if they do, we'll make their life really difficult. And that's unfortunately uh, still the situation even now, uh, three and a bit months into the war. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's lots more I want to say about the politics of that situation and of, of these particular kind of combinations yeah, of don't, language. Don't even get us started on the Home Office, yeah, and I, I know you've done... Don't get uh, us, either of us started yeah. on these things, I think is the, the message <laughs> here. But I would like to save the, you know, we've got maybe 10 minutes now for um, any questions. Um, if there's anything anybody wanted to ask. And there is a microphone roving... So, uh, yes, please. This is really more about the translating of, of novels, actually, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, because what you said at the very beginning was how you bring something, or I, I wasn't sure, translators can bring something to it. So it was kind of, I was just interested in how you work with authors or, you know, when you translate their their work and and specifically have you had any kind of run-ins with people who actually don't like the way you're translating it mm, I mean I'm kind of fortunate enough to be mainly working with dead authors uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's fine <laughs> but uh, no I, I have translated some living authors as well um, they mainly just uh, trust me and I mean even those who have some uh, like a smart train of English or a serviceable English uh, I can't think of any uh, out and out kind of showdowns that we have. Do you think it somehow changes the whole, not the whole thing of it, but the kind of tone of it? You probably would if, if you were to engage in a discussion with, uh, with your author I'm sure both of you would uh, take something away from that discussion and your translation, your finished product as a result would bear some traces of that. I can't say I've got any immediate experience of that, but I have spoken to people who, uh, let's say they're translating a trendy author who is very much in demand and they'll be constantly exchanging uh, messages with them and uh, discussing things. Um, I do remember asking maybe just a couple of uh, factual questions, as in like when something is not spelled out or or there's a typo or something which can be read uh, both ways. And yeah, you just clear those things. So uh, I'm afraid my experience is quite sort of uh, bland and boring, but I'm sure other people, uh, better translators than me, will have uh, had any number of stories of that nature. I think you also mentioned in the book um, the way that novelists have can have very different ideas of how literature should be translated. And I think, was it Nabokov, you said his idea was that it should read like a kind of, almost like a Google Translate printout before its day. And uh, you shouldn't yeah. try and add any elements of style or yeah, anything Yeah, like yeah, I mean, if you look at his uh, uh, famous translation of Eugene Onegin, I mean, the uh, uh, novel in verse is about, I don't know, 100 pages, but uh, Nabokov's edition is uh, 10 times or 15 times longer because of all the uh, notes. And that's, of course, a blessing because, I mean, if you don't want to 
make your text too foreign sounding or the other way around, or if you don't want it to be too domesticated, then uh, you always have notes at your disposal. And uh, especially for someone who translates nonfiction, I think uh, I just finished a, a translation, um, and that's by an author who was killed in 1937, so there's absolutely no way I can ask him anything, but I can always ask the editors who are historians of that period. But uh, the notes are almost the same length as the actual text, and uh, this is what this is my chance to gloss things, to explain them when necessary, and it's, it quite often it is necessary, so that's what you do. But it's a different kind of genre and a different format. No. Yes, definitely. Anyone else? Yeah, please. I wonder if I may go back to the issue of the sort of the fixers and interpreters that you both touched on a bit. And I think this sort of, this issue of people being parachuted into major world situations. I mean, I, I was in China in June 89 and a colleague of mine was on a plane with a journalist from one of our fine national newspapers who asked him if he knew how far it was from Peking to Beijing. Um, so, but the, 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 what, what I'm wondering, if you've both got experience in this area, you talked a bit about the person who very enthusiastically was showing the menu of people. You know, it, it seems to me that there are very often people who have quite a strong agenda who present themselves to the media organizations as fixers and interpreters. And I wonder what your sense is as to how picky these people who are being parachuted in from wherever they were in the world to report on these stories are about choosing the people who are going to, you know, we're seeing what's happening in these things like Ukraine really through the lens of, because I suspect almost nobody from the international news organizations there at the moment speaks Ukrainian. Very, very few of them, if any. So we're, everything we're hearing is through the lens of these interpreters. And I just wonder in your own experience, how carefully you think they may choose these people who jump up and down at the airport enthusiastically offering their services. Hold on for you then. Yeah, well, I think it, it, can, it can hugely vary, but I think actually Ukraine's an interesting example where, yeah, you're right, there's gonna be very few journalists coming who don't have a connection to Ukraine personally that are going to speak Ukrainian. Uh, and also, you know, not that many will speak Russian either. And so it, it, it's a place where people will be very reliant on fixers and interpreters. But on the other hand, because there's been a war going on there since 2014, um, there's a kind of very established uh, industry of fixers. Um, and the, those people will be or, you know, very often be working journalists, they'll be, be often highly regarded professional journalists working in Ukraine. And there are kind of networks set up to get people in contact with one another. And um, I know a fair bit about this because uh, a good friend of mine who is Russian-Ukrainian set up and run, is the admin of the Ukraine Fixers Facebook group, which is, I think that's used less these days because Facebook is less of a... Um, it's just people use it less for those things. But definitely in 2014, it was where any journalist coming to the country would go first, would go to that group and ask for fixes. But she and colleagues have done a really um, good job over the year of um, kind of trying to make people aware that the fixes are not just kind of um, uneducated native guides, as it were, but they're professionals with their own ideas and sense of ethics and skills and so on, and trying to make sure that people recognise that when they're working with them and to try and get people to work with them more as colleagues 
on, on an equal level. And I think that's actually changed quite a bit globally in the last few years. There's more of a d- discussion about the ethics of using fixes and the idea that, yeah, it's, you know, but I suppose the other part of it, you're hiring people with professional skills, not simply that they live there and speak a language and, and might know people. So for, for instance, um, which is a very disturbing story, but a, a journalist who writes for The Guardian about Latin America uh, went missing in Brazil somewhere in the Amazon this week. Um, and he went missing with a colleague who um, was from a Brazilian indigenous background who, reading between the lines, was working with him in some kind of fixer or interpreter capacity. And uh, not everybody's been doing it, but in, in the international reporting and the things people are putting on Twitter, they're naming both people and saying they're both missing, we need to find them. And when people aren't mentioning it, they're being corrected by other journalists. And that's actually, I think, even maybe five... Ten years ago, that wouldn't happen. Well, um, next they should credit them an actual byline. Well, yeah, and then there's that question. Um, Before they go missing or... Yeah. Um, I think we've got... Yeah, we started at five past, and so I think we've got about a minute left if somebody wants to <laughs> jump in with something. We maybe going to ask something? Okay. Yeah. I hope this isn't, like, a trite question, <laughs> um, but I was just kind of wondering what was... What's been the hardest thing that you've had to translate? So the whether that's thing. yeah, so whether that's been kind of linguistically or maybe for emotional reasons or just something and, and, and kind of the idea is there a perfect translation? Like I'm a secondary school languages teacher and the idea of like translation, I always kind of think of it as kind of an art form, like you know, there's so many different ways that things can be translated. I wondered what your view is on that really. Well, to, to begin with the second part of the question, I don't think there is a, a perfect translation. I mean, it's all done on a kind of case-by-case basis, and what's a perfect translation to me will be a horrible translation to any number of people. So I don't think there is any unique recipe there. The hardest thing, I mean, I, I do quite a bit of translation and interpreting, and the hardest thing is when your source makes little sense or no sense. When someone, I don't know, a witness in court or, a, or even an author on the page is talking rubbish and there's only so much you can do to beat it into shape. And this is, I guess, the hardest thing. When, when the, the source, the person speaking and writing doesn't quite understand what they are on about, as a result, you don't quite understand that either. All you can do is try and preserve that ambiguity and, uh, and then leave it open-ended for the audience or readership to figure out what it's all about. Then uh, chances are you're going to be blamed for that because everyone will say, well, your translation makes no sense. You're not going to go back and stand up and say, excuse me, the interpreter or translator would like to explain that the source didn't make any sense. But yeah, this is quite hard. Yeah, I mean, also, you don't even have to be translating for that to be an issue. At the magazine that I used to edit, we once ran um, a piece by a very august uh, professor at an Ivy League uh, university in the US, I can't remember, Yale or Harvard, um, and he wrote an essay for us, and it, the, his article came back from our sub-editor with a comment at the top, well, this person evidently doesn't speak English as a first language, so we need to tidy it up. Um, But in answer to your first question about the kind of what's the hardest, I was just thinking, and I think, I mean, in in my work specifically, obviously reporting on people who've been displaced for all sorts of reasons that that obviously can be quite difficult, um, it's been either when people I've encountered have been in very desperate 
situations, you know, they may be detained or trapped or, you know, really need some kind of material resource that they're not being given access to. And then as a journalist, you're given this kind of ethical dilemma, which is what, in order to do my job properly, I have to not help them and just sort of observe, but you always want to help. But also people's experiences that you might want to get them to talk about could themselves be very distressing for them to bring up again, uh, or maybe I would find them distressing to hear about. And then having to deal with the language obstacle as well creates extra complications. But I think the example of that that came to mind is that uh, there's a woman I write about in the book called Zainab who um, came, she's from Iraq, and I met her in Calais. She had she had fled Iraq with her children in 2014 because uh, the Islamic State took over the, the city that she was from um, and had made the journey all the way to Calais, uh, you know, being smuggled in the back of lorries and so on. And then um, subsequently made it to the UK where we met up and her English was very halting. Um, she'd only been in the country for a few weeks when I met her and she was able to kind of communicate the, the sort of the bare bones of the story to me. You know, enough that I knew, for example, that she'd seen her father shot dead in front of her in Iraq, uh, that they'd been put in a lorry that was going to go on a ferry crossing the channel where the air had run out and people started to suffocate and so on. Uh, but she wasn't telling me that in the kind of detail that I could use um, to write about. And unfortunately, I don't speak Arabic. So I was trying to work out a way I could do that without paying for an interpreter to come and sit in the room for the reasons that I was talking about earlier. And actually... The solution turned out to deal with the, those kind of ethical issues in a very good way as well, which was I said, well, OK, I felt she knew what I want, was doing well enough and trusted me enough that I said, well, why don't I just leave you my dictaphone and you just tell your story into it at whatever, you know, whatever details you want to highlight, just, just speak into the dictaphone and I'll come back next week and pick it up and I'll get a friend who speaks Arabic to translate it. And that worked really well because it also put her in a place where she, you know, it gave it that kind of confessional aspect, but she was very in control of it. Um, and so it, it was also, it solved a problem journalistically and it, being blunt about it, it got very good material out of it, but it also kind of helped with these other issues that it meant that I was fairly sure I wasn't kind of adding to her distress and that she felt she had some kind of control over the situation. So I think as we're pretty much dead on for an hour, we should uh, wrap it up there. Um, you look like you were there. Daniel, thank you so much. That was marvellous. Thank ah, you. Well, thank you. Well, so thanks to Anna and thanks to all thank of you for Daniel. coming. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.